The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Dr. Liz Carlisle. She is an assistant professor in the Environmental Studies Program at University of California, Santa Barbara. She teaches courses on food and farming there. However, she was born and raised in Montana, where she got hooked on sustainable agriculture while working as an aide to organic farmer and U.S. Senator John Tester. That led to a decade of research and writing collaborations with agroecological farmers in her home state. Dr. Carlisle has written three books about regenerative farming and agroecology, Lentil Underground, Grain by Grain with co-author Bob Quinn, and most recently, and the topic of our conversation today, Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. Dr. Carlisle is also a frequent contributor to both academic journals and popular media outlets, where she focuses on food and farm policy, incentivizing soil health practices, and supporting new entry farmers. She holds a Ph.D. in geography from the University of California at Berkeley. She holds a B.A. in folklore and mythology from Harvard University. And prior to her career as a writer and academic, she spent several years touring rural America as a country singer. Welcome, Liz. Thank you so much for having me back, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I am thrilled. And I love that in addition to all of your academic work, you toured the country as a country music singer. I just think that you probably learned so much in that time when you traveled around. It's just absolutely true. And, you know, early on in graduate school, I didn't mention that to very many people. I kind of buried that. I never would have put it in an official bio but in recent years, I think I have realized just how much of my work has actually been informed by that experience. So so thanks for sharing that. I don't feel like I need to hide it anymore. <laughs> no, and I think the last time we spoke, which was right after your excellent book, Lentil Underground, which I just want to let our listeners know is a fabulous book, not so much about lentils as it is about cooperative farming. And that, of course, that theme runs through this book as well. But I remember when we first spoke about that, I said, I hope you're still singing because you have a beautiful voice as well. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's wonderful to have had music as part of my life. So thank you to my parents (laughs) for gifting me with that experience. Well, it's a wonderful language in its own right. We need to jump into Healing Grounds because I think this is such an important book. I would guess that you wrote this book before the war in Ukraine, and we were dealing with climate crisis. And then while climate was on our radar, front and center, then COVID happened. 
And your introduction to this book is actually written by Ricardo Salvador with the Union of Concerned Scientists. And he rightly starts out by saying that as this book goes to press, the need for healing is on the mind of anyone who reflects on the times in which we live. And I think about that line and I think, oh, he wrote that before the war. So this is now amplified all the more. Your book opens not with a dedication, but with a quote from Robin Wall Kimmerer, who was the author of Braiding Sweetgrass. Would you mind reading that? Oh, yeah. This passage I come back to again and again. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's just such wisdom in these words from Robin Wall Kimmerer. My students will often pull this out as the passage from Braiding Sweetgrass that most resonates with them, that they want to write down and put on their wall. So, It was a kind of guiding, almost mantra for me as I was researching this book. This is uh, this is Robin Wall Kimmerer from Braiding Sweetgrass, and she writes, Know the ways of the ones who take care of you, so that you may take care of them. Introduce yourself. Be accountable as the one who comes asking for life. Ask permission before taking. Abide by the answer. Never take the first, never take the last. Take only what you need. Take only that which is given. Never take more than half. Leave some for others. Harvest in a way that minimizes harm. Use it respectfully. Never waste what you have taken. Share. Give thanks for what you have been given. Give a gift in reciprocity for what you have taken. Sustain the ones who sustain you, and the earth will last forever. And that, again, it's Robin Wall Kimmerer from Braiding Sweetgrass. And I could not think of a better way to introduce this book, because what Robin Wall Kimmerer's statement says to me is, It is a message of reverence for the land and the food and each other. And boy, couldn't we all use a little bit more of that? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's the underpinning of everything that we need to do in our food system and in response to the climate crisis and to find these integrated forms of healing. Exactly. And this recognition that we are all connected on this earth And this particular book, Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming, really captures the voices of five key women, and they are protectors of the earth and the food system. And I'm wondering how you found these five voices to tell the story of regeneration. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It definitely, this is a sort of my situated perspective as the author of this particular book. You know, lots of other people might tell this story differently from their own perspective. But for me, as a white woman from a settler background, born and raised in Montana, it made sense that I should start trying to understand the ancestral roots of what's now being talked about as regenerative agriculture by speaking with indigenous leaders in Montana, in the sort of territories where I was born and raised and where I have the deepest relationships. 
So I was really, really lucky to have the opportunity to speak with Latrice Tatsy, who's a Blackfeet woman who is a scientist. She's finishing up a graduate degree at Montana State University, who's looking at the carbon sequestration implications of both buffalo grazing and cattle grazing. She's actually comparing soil health data on buffalo pastures and cattle pastures at Blackfeet Nation. And she's both an advocate for buffalo restoration, as is her dad, and really involved in bringing buffalo home to Blackfeet Nation. And also her family raises cattle, and they've been trying to think about the way that they raise cattle as being informed by these relationships with buffalo. So that was so clearly the place for me to start. And my conversation with Latrice helped me, I think, grapple with not just that history in Montana, but indigenous land management throughout North America. And then following after that conversation, I knew I really needed to try to grapple with the black experience of agriculture in the U.S. and also African indigenous regenerative agriculture and the ways in which that has continued throughout the African diaspora. And I was able to speak with a woman named Olivia Watkins, who is forest farming, a plot of forest in North Carolina that's been in her family for 130 years. So an ancestor of hers was one of the first black landowners in that area in 1890. And she tells this incredible story about how she's simultaneously preserving threatened black-owned land and conserving threatened forest in an area that's rapidly urbanizing. So this land is both a sanctuary for black people and a sanctuary for wildlife and soil carbon in a world, you know, where this extractive colonial paradigm sort of threatens them both. And I learned a lot, I think, about ways in which black liberation and agroforestry and relationships with trees and woods have been really deeply connected. How were you connected to these individuals? And then we'll go on to the others. But I'm wondering how you were able to find these strong, wise voices. Actually, there's so many amazing leaders of color in the regenerative agriculture movement, or, you know, maybe people who wouldn't use those terms, but whose work deeply informs what regenerative agriculture should be doing. The hardest part was like, wow, how do you choose? And yet I wanted to go deeply into particular stories. I wanted each of these chapters to essentially have a sort of guide, have the story of one person guide the reader through these deep, complex histories of whole communities. So that part was challenging. (laughs) But as far as connecting with people, it's been really wonderful to be in this field now for about 12 years and to be teaching and organizing with people and trying to get policies passed and things like that. And so I just kind of started with that web of relationships. And I started by talking with mentors and peers who I deeply respect about just these bigger concepts of how is racial justice related to regenerative agriculture and what work do you think, what specific work speaks to those really bigger issues that everybody needs to understand. And Latrice, you know, I met Latrice's dad back in, I think, 2010 when I was a graduate student and I was interested in some programs that Blackfeet Community College was doing. So that was kind of reconnecting with folks I'd spoken with many years earlier. Olivia Watkins, I didn't know her at all. I saw her on a Savannah Institute webinar, 
and was just blown away hearing about Oliver's agroforest or forest farming project. So that was just a cold email. <laughs> right. Okay, so let's go through the others briefly, and then we'll go back and do as much of a deep dive as we can do in 30 minutes. So the third individual featured in the book is Adi Guzman. Yes, and it took me a long time to get that pronunciation. I still probably don't have it, but I think more or less, Aide Guzman. And so Aide works and researches in California, which is where I now live and work. So she actually came to Berkeley as a graduate student while I was still there as a graduate student. And she had this amazing project that she was working on for her dissertation in California's Central Valley. And so California's Central Valley, you know, much like the Midwestern landscapes we've been talking about, is dominated by industrial agriculture. But Ida was proposing this project working with small-scale, diversified farms. She basically wanted to show that having a diversity of crops above ground would correspond to biodiversity below ground in the soil microbial community, which is so key to carbon sequestration. And a lot of folks in the research community were like, where are you going to find these small-scale diversified farms in the Central Valley? You know, like you're going to be looking for a needle in a haystack. Right. But Ida, actually, her parents came to the Central Valley as farm workers. They had grown up on a small-scale diversified farm in Mexico. But anyway, Ida was connected to the immigrant community in the Central Valley and connected to immigrant small farmers who were raising these biodiverse polycultures in the midst of this industrial farming landscape. And so she partnered with those farmers, and her research demonstrated that, in fact, yes, this biodiversity in crops corresponds to this biodiversity below ground. She found two times as many types of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi on polyculture farms. Wow. Liz, we've got to take one quick break because we're halfway through. So I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Liz Carlisle. And she is the author of the book we're focused on, which is titled Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. Well, we then jump into a conversation with Nikiko Masumoto. Tell me briefly about her. Yeah, so Nikiko is also in the California Central Valley, and her family were Japanese-American immigrants in the early 20th century, and so they faced all kinds of discriminatory laws. They weren't able to buy land because Japanese-Americans were not allowed to buy land, and then her family members were incarcerated during World War II, during the internment period. So her grandparents came out of that period and despite all of that, decided they were going to plant roots in American soil in this place that had made them feel they did not belong. So she's now the third generation farming organic nectarines, peaches, and raisin grapes and apricots on Masamoto family farm. Her dad, Moss, is an incredibly gifted author. So maybe some of your listeners know Moss Masamoto's books. Absolutely. And then you also bring the voice of Stephanie Morningstar. Yeah. So in the final chapter, I had sort of gotten to know all of these women who were doing these incredible projects that were 
really powerful climate solutions, like really deep regenerative agriculture in terms of really having the ability to draw soil carbon back out of the atmosphere, but also so much about indigenous land sovereignty and farmers of color getting access to land. So there's all this cool stuff going on. But then ultimately the question I imagine you get asked sometimes, Melinda, and that I've gotten asked a lot with my work is like, you know, if this stuff is so cool, why isn't this the dominant way that farming is being approached in this country? Mm. And it was so clear to me throughout the research to that book that the answer to that question is a failure of land justice. That 98% of agricultural land in this country is white-owned, and much of that is now increasingly controlled by institutional finance and people pretty far removed from the idea of managing land based on a reciprocal relationship. So the key thing it became clear to me is land justice and indigenous people, communities of color need to have long-term land tenure in order to be able to do all this cool stuff that was featured in the book. So there were a couple projects that I was really inspired by that are kind of like next generation land trusts. And so one of them is the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust, directed by Stephanie Morningstar. And so like a lot of land trusts, the idea is to try to acquire land and then manage it in a particular way that is consistent with set of environmental goals, but then also provide access to a particular set of people. So it's kind of a hybrid between a conservation land trust and a community land trust. But what's cool is that it's not just about changing who owns the land. The deeper mission of Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust is to actually change the way we relate to land and to get beyond just that imposed colonial notion of property and have land as a relation kind of emerge again and to have every single one of these projects to be working with indigenous communities in whose territories these projects are happening supporting farmers and developing cooperative business models to really shift the way that people relate to land. Well, I love this book because of the voices that you chose to amplify and bring in their unique perspectives culturally to help us see that there are common threads and the importance of paying attention to those. In one of the topics I wanted to bring up with you, and maybe we should have done this from the get-go, is this notion of regenerative farming, because each of the voices you bring to the book identifies what regenerative farming really looks like. And yet, I see regenerative as the next new greenwashed buzzword, not unlike sustainable, which doesn't have a legal definition. And I see it popping up all over the place. And I see the industrial food system latching onto it, thinking, well, you know, if we can call what we're doing regenerative, we can sell more product. How do you navigate the definition of regenerative agriculture? That's a great question, Melinda. (laughs) You know, I just want to say, first of all, that I think there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. And I completely respect the view that perhaps this is just not the right word to take us where we need to go. I think for me, it seemed like there was an opportunity in the word regeneration, because that to me is actually pretty explicit. It's a commitment to fixing what was broken to healing what was damaged. 
that to me is, is the like literal meaning of the word regeneration. So the fact that so many people are uttering that word and are attracted to that word and that idea, I think that's an opportunity to say, okay, we're interested in regeneration. What does it mean? What is required of us in order to actually regenerate the agricultural lands of the North American continent? And if you take that seriously, that's going to lead you on a journey where you see that, okay, yes, soil carbon was extracted, but that was part of a larger extractive process that affected people as well as soil and plants and animals. And all those relationships that were disrupted through that violence and that extraction, in order for those things to all come back together in a sort of healing and reciprocal way, it needs to involve more than just measuring the amount of soil carbon on a particular plot of land. It really does need to involve true regeneration. (laughs) And that, you know, I think the key part for me is that involves people. Yeah. I thought it was interesting you gave a great webinar through Island Press, who is the publisher of your book. And I believe there will be a link to that available. And I'll post that along with this interview, because I think you brought up so many excellent points in that. But one of the things that you brought forth that I think really needs attention is that this idea that, oh, regenerative agriculture, it's this new concept. And you make very clear that it is not new. Yeah, it's not new. That is for sure, although it is new to some people. Um, Right. So, yeah, I mean, sort of the first techniques that I became aware of when I started talking to folks in the organic movement that then kind of migrated towards regenerative over time, I started learning about things like planting a soil-building cover crop or using compost or mulch to return organic matter to the soil, rotating more diverse crops. Um, in some cases, more ambitiously designing an agroforestry system or something with more perennial plants. And all of those techniques that are getting a lot of attention right now under this umbrella of regenerative, they're all rooted in ancestral practices that indigenous peoples around the world have been using for hundreds, in many cases, thousands of years. And when you sort of trace them back to those origins, you find that they're not just applied as isolated practices here and there. They're part of a systematic means of managing land that is this kind of reciprocal relationship with land. So it's both important to kind of credit these indigenous communities around the world with having come up with this stuff. But it's also important to take leadership from those communities and implementing it because the way in which they're implementing it isn't just this kind of hodgepodge of individual techniques. It's actually a sort of integrated whole that that's where the power to reverse climate change lies. (laughs) Not just in like, oh, let's do a little no-till over here and, you know, plant a cover crop over here. It has to be much more, it has to be much deeper than that. Exactly. It's not a list of things to do. It's much broader. And I think that Nikiko Masumato really summed it up well on page 154, where she says, if we even just pause and think about the term regenerative 
For me, what jumps out is the idea of a generational connection. It's about a much deeper timeline of what it means to belong to a place. And I thought that was beautiful because in our American culture, it seems that we're very much dominated by this idea of modernness and, you know, what are our earnings per quarter, as opposed to taking this essential long view beyond ourselves, beyond the present generation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think an orientation that I'll probably spend my whole life reaching for, but that I hear very much in Nikiko's words and in Latrice Tatsy's words in particular from Blackfeet Nation, is the idea that, in fact, we are the land and the land is us. Like, you know, you speak so eloquently, Melinda, about health and the idea that the health of the land and the well-being of the land and the well-being of, like, my body are so deeply interconnected. I mean, there's, there are languages in which people use the same words for both of those things. And wow. so I think that's the kind of perspective to reach for, is right. where you don't even make this distinction between taking care of land and taking care of, like, a human family member, that it is all really so deeply integrated. Exactly. And, you know, we just have a few minutes, but I would be remiss if I didn't bring up something that is on a lot of people's minds right now, and that is whether or not to eat meat. And that takes us back, of course, to your experience with Latrice and the horrific slaughter of bison on the Great Plains. And I feel like we should be talking about meat eating Because so many of us want to do the right thing. So it's not just what farmers can do or land stewards can do, but it's up to all of us, as you say. It's the eaters, too, the consumers, to all be working together and see ourselves as united. And personally, and I've heard you say this as well, is you don't have to give up meat, but meat from an industrial system is not sustainable, it's not regenerative, it's not good for the soil, it's not good for our health, it's not good for water and air quality. So less meat, but better meat. But I don't think that technology and these cell-based meats are the answer that seems incongruous with our discussion of regenerative, a regenerative way of being. Yep, I'm 100% with you on all of that, Melinda. And I think that less meat, better meat phrase has been very helpful to me. And I also agree with you that what I'm seeing in the cell-based meat community is just more of the same in terms of processed foods that are produced by corporate actors. And I think about how different it is than like having a backyard chicken and eating an egg, you know, in terms of the food sovereignty that you might have over that protein source are not something anybody's ever going to make in their backyard, you know? Right. And that makes me uncomfortable because then who's in control of your food system? So I think you're right. I think we're going to be stuck with CAFOs if we continue to demand the amount of meat on a population basis that we currently do in the U.S. because we can't produce that much meat regeneratively. But if we can eat less meat, (laughs) then that means it can be humanely raised and regenerative and in right relationship. Mm. And I think, to me, that's what I want out of my participation in the food system is a feeling that I'm part of 
other beings thriving rather than part of other beings having a bad life. I think that term, writing relationship, came up in your webinar. You mentioned it just now. I feel like that is a great closing concept. The idea that we are going to write relationships with our environment and with the wise people who came before us to create a truly regenerative system. So unfortunately, Liz, we're out of time. But in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Liz Carlisle. She is the author of Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. She's the author of multiple books and articles, and I encourage you to pick this one up if you want to have feelings of positivity moving forward. There is a way, and you've outlined it for us very well. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Melinda. Such a pleasure. 